Heavenly Father, thank you for your presence with us by your Spirit. Please help us to understand these words and to grow in grace. Amen. I found myself wrestling with what it means to be devoted to the breaking of bread. I could speak about breaking bread in the caves above the shepherd's fields near Bethlehem. Uh, It was the practice there that you had to use the local robes. Uh, My curate flatly refused to get into them. And so I ended up wearing priestly robes instead of him that looked like they could have been worn by Elvis Presley in his Las Vegas period. Uh, It was made from bright gold and bright scarlet lame. I've never had anyone ask me to give them a twirl when I came out of the vestry before. Uh, There were a lot of giggles from the 40-plus people from Bletchley who were there, and a lot of hurriedly taken photos, and it was a while, honestly, before order was restored. Uh, I could speak about breaking bread at Mensa Christi, the table of Christ by the Sea of Galilee, on the shoreline associated with Jesus cooking them breakfast and making peace with Peter. And the utter unity and stillness that we experienced there as we reflected on that and reflected on it being only love which qualifies us to serve. I could speak about other times I've got it wrong in communion, such as the time when I hadn't checked the bread that the warden had laid out and discovered only as I had uncovered it that it was mouldy. Or another occasion when I uncovered it and not realizing the mic was still on set in a surprised and unguarded moment, well, it appears the Lord is granary this morning. Or the time when I'd forgotten to put, this haunts me 25 years later, the time when I had forgotten to put the wine into the cups before I started the Eucharistic prayer. The altar table there had a stage microphone on it, which picked up everything. So as I started in the deathly silence to pour the wine into the cup, it sounded hideously like someone going to the lavatory. But unfortunately, I had started and I could not stop. It was 25 years on. It was one of my most embarrassing minutes in ministry ever. It seemed to last forever. Or I could talk about my church warden in my last church organizing Yes, really, a communion wine tasting because he didn't like the uh, taste of the communion wine. I felt I should be a little bit like a sommelier coming out and saying, it appears this morning that the Lord is Cobignon Sauvignon. So I could speak about the lighter side of breaking bread, but I was really challenged by verse 46. Verse 46 in Acts 2 is all one sentence in the original text. So the every day they continued doesn't just apply to them gathering in the temple for worship. It applies also to their meeting together in their homes to break bread with glad and sincere hearts. And there's something about that table fellowship that demands that we be at peace. Because whenever we've been in a family situation and people aren't peace, at peace gathered around the table, we know it. We know that we have to deal with it. The breaking of bread together was a regular part of their lives. In memory of Jesus' sacrifice, a very regular part of their lives. This is something to which they devoted themselves. And I found myself wondering what I made of that. Because we would say that we're biblical people, many of us. 
but the pressure from very many, from the liturgical right through to the contemporary, is for us to hold communion services less frequently. And for it to occupy as short a time in our services as humanly possible. We risk treating it more like a McDonald's drive-through than a feast. We risk choosing Eucharistic prayers for their brevity rather than their meaning. I confess that I have done that. But none of that seems compatible with being devoted to the breaking of bread. So what might that look like for us as devoted disciples? What might we be missing out on? Well, first point, and it's an obvious one. Jesus told us to do this. He told us to break bread. You might know the word sacrament. It's sometimes defined as an outward sign of an inward and invisible grace. Another way of describing a sacrament is that these are ways in which God has promised to meet with us. The Church of England recognises just two, baptism and and communion, as ways in which the Lord has told us to remember him. Communion is also called the breaking of bread, it's also sometimes the Eucharist, and that word is just taken from the Greek word meaning to give thanks. All of these are different words for the same sacrament, though the different names emphasise slightly different things. So a sacrament is the outward sign of an inward grace. These are ways in which God has promised to meet with us. In baptism, the water is the outward sign of the inward cleansing that baptism doesn't just symbolise, but brings about. In communion, the bread and the wine are the outward sign of Jesus' victory over sin and death. Every time we consume bread and wine, the outward sign of an inward grace, we make that victory part of who we are. As verse 26 puts it, whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. When we remember, as Jesus told us to do, it's more than a mere calling to mind. It is a making present, it is an entering into of the power of the cross. Every time we do this, we're asking for the power of that victory to be at work in our lives and in our relationships. They were devoted to doing this, as Jesus had commanded them to do. They were devoted to receiving the power of his victory in this way on a very regular basis. So we can't choose to say that this doesn't matter. I found myself uncomfortable about this. I found myself questioning whether we take this too lightly. I found myself questioning whether or not being devoted to this was just as much a part of them being filled with awe as the apostles' teaching, whether being devoted to this was just so much a part of them seeing wonders and signs as as being committed to the fellowship, just as much a part of them seeing people joining their number day by day as joining together in prayer. I wonder if we're downplaying its significance. For this is the only act of worship, aside from baptism that happens only once, that Jesus explicitly told us to observe. We've got really good reasons for all of our other worship choices, whether it's morning services, matins, all-age services, services with and services without liturgy, services with or without music, services that are intentionally messy and services that are unintentionally messy, services that are digital, hybrid, or just in person, and we've got lots of opinions about the right coffee to serve. <laughs> 
But this is the one act of worship about which we have no choice. We've got choices about all of the others. We can personalise them to the nth degree, but not about this. If we wanted to be devoted disciples, then we have to be devoted to the breaking of bread. How devoted are we? How reverently are we calling Jesus' victory to mind? Second point, symbols are not mechanical. Symbols are not magical. Years ago, I went to uh, an ecumenical service in York Minster. It was on Good Friday evening. As part of the worship, teams from all four points of the compass had walked crosses in, uh, worshipping and praying as they came. Uh, and it was really, really moving seeing them all come into the minster up the central aisle one by one. The climax of the service was to be an expression of unity as all four crosses were bolted together to make one cross. It was initially really moving, but then nothing happened. It became apparent that lots of people were busy at the front. Uh, the compare kept waffling, saying that the big reveal of the cross was going to come in a second, but the big reveal of the united cross never came. Why? They bolted them together in the wrong order. They just wouldn't fit together. They tried. For eight or nine excruciating minutes, they tried, and oh my word, he waffled as he was trying to explain what was going on. But the four crosses designed to make one as a celebration of our unity never came together. They actually managed to symbolize the absolute opposite of what the plan was. Symbols don't automatically work. That's the point Paul makes in our other passage. It doesn't automatically work. It's not magic. It isn't a mechanical process that works come what may. Even though these are ways in which God has promised to meet us a sacrament doesn't automatic, automatically bear fruit. We have to respond in the right spirit. We have a part to play. And brutally, Paul tells us, we can defeat the breaking of bread. That is the truly shocking point Paul makes in verse 20. He says, so that when you come together, you've, you think you're doing it, you're saying the right words, you've got the bread and the wine, but it's not working. So that when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat. Something about their community, their relationships, meant that they were failing. Like those four crosses that simply wouldn't be fitted together, the bread and the wine were not being fruitful for them. Worse still, how they were celebrating the breaking of bread was actually causing judgment upon the church. So what was going on? Well, a Roman home large enough to host a house church would have several large areas. The central atrium or hall, a private dining room towards the back, as well as lots of other reception rooms. It appears that the hosts were having a private supper with invited friends. A supper that might well have started long before uh, poorer members of the church, particularly slaves, actually arrived. All are equal at the foot of the cross. All are equal at the foot of the cross. But as they gathered to celebrate being equal at the foot of the cross, they were not. 
They were divided by wealth. They were divided by social status. They might well have been divided by ethnicity as well. Those with the leisure to come early were getting stuck in, enjoying a rich feast and lots of wine. But others were arriving barely on time, maybe late, probably slaves, or those living close to the breadline, and they had little or nothing to contribute to the shared table, and they were arriving to find it picked clean. And some of their brothers and sisters drunk. As Paul says in verse 22, don't you have a homes to eat in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? Verse 27, it would be really helpful, Steve, if we could have that up. Verse 27 has often been taken out of context and it's caused lots and lots of heartache over the years. But taking communion in an unworthy manner was about their corporate practice of grace. Thus the body they are to discern in verse 29 is not Christ's body in the bread. The bread represents Christ's body. It does not become Christ's body. The body they are to discern in verse 29 is Christ's body as the community. It's Christ's body as the gathered church. Taking communion in an unworthy manner is not about the states of their individual hearts. It is about the state of their community. When Paul challenges us in verse 28 to examine ourselves before partaking of the body and blood of the Lord, he's challenging us to ask ourselves hard questions. Hard questions about our attitudes towards one another. That's the body we are to discern. It recalls Jesus talking about in, in Matthew 5 or 6 when you come to the altar and you remember that you've got, your brother's got something against you. Leave your gift there and go and sort it out with your brother. We are being challenged about our practice of grace. We are being challenged about the horizontal as much as the vertical. Challenged about how we are with one another as much as how we are with the Lord. As verse 33 insists, so then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. If you're so hungry you can't wait, he says, eat before you come, so that when you meet together it may not result in judgment, verse 34. It isn't automatic. Our practice of grace together really matters. But if we're not living grace together, then judgment can come. Third point, Jesus tells us to make peace. Jesus tells us to make peace. Jesus refuses to allow us to separate the vertical and the horizontal. As Matthew 6, 14 and 15 insists, being forgiven and forgiving others belong together. Now we want a choice about whether we have to, but Jesus doesn't give us any. He is distressingly clear on this point. For the power of the victory of the cross to be abundantly present in our midst, we have to be a people who are willing to practice grace with one another. And not just to say it, that's an outward sign. Not just to say it, but to mean it. That's the inward reality. We can't choose one without the other. What does the Lord's Prayer say? Forgive us our sins as those as we forgive those who sin against us. Forgive us our sins as, not before, 
not only if we want to, but as one demands the other. As far as in as lies, one demands the other. As Paul says in Romans 12, if it is possible, insofar as it depends on you, live at peace with one another. I remember giving the bread to my dad at communion many years ago. Giving it to my dad and calling him dad at the altar rail. Now that doesn't sound like a big deal. But I was giving him the bread at the altar rail after he'd been reconciled to my mum following a long affair. That's the heart of the breaking of bread to me. The heart of the practice of grace. It is the making of peace. It is the refusal to stay estranged. It is the choosing to forgive and to live in peace with one another. It's doing that despite all that had passed between us. And all of that's possible only because of the cross. Only possible because I determined to practice the cross. The cross without which no real peace is possible. Possible either between us and God or between us and those we've hurt or between us and those who have wounded us. Now I cannot say that that was easy. But I had to look him in the eye and mean it. I had no choice. Whether as a priest or as a son or as a Christian, I had no choice. It had to be real or it was nothing. It took a lot of soul searching and prayer to get to that place and to be able to practice the cross in that moment. But it had to be done. I had no choice. I had to live grace. And that meant I actually had to get to the point where I had forgiven him before daring, daring to give him the bread. It had to be real or it was nothing. And I felt the power of the cross and the presence and pleasure of the Spirit in that moment as I gave him the bread. We cannot separate out the vertical and just believe it's about us and God. We cannot separate out the vertical from the horizontal at the Lord's table. We cannot ask for grace from our Father and refuse it to our brothers and sisters. Being devoted to the breaking of bread means being devoted to the practice of grace. To what extent are we breaking bread without intending to make peace, without intending to be at peace with one another? For then we risk dulling the power of Christ's victory at work in our lives. We even risk, if we persist in it, in bringing judgment on one another. Brothers and sisters, to whom would Jesus send you to make peace? To whom do you need to offer forgiveness? To whom do you need to confess wrongdoing? To whom do you need to humble yourself and say sorry? It has to be real or it's nothing. Otherwise, it's four crosses that won't bolt together. Where do you need to live the horizontal as much as the vertical at the Lord's table? I found this devoted the hardest so far. It's challenged me much more than I expected. I wonder in what ways it's challenged you. Remember, Jesus told us to do this. It isn't magical. 
It isn't mechanical, but it is powerful. Powerful when we live the peace that we profess. Jesus told us to make peace so that we can share in the power of the cross together. What does it mean for you to be devoted to the breaking of bread? And how are you going to live that out?